Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I was just telling our guest here that I cannot believe we have not had him on the podcast because he's in all of our circles and known as just really like the valedictorian of all things metabolic mastery with regards to research. He's the consummate researcher. He's spoken at all of our paleo and metabolic ancestral events that are out there throughout the years, and we haven't had him on. So Dom D'Agostino is coming on the show. Welcome. And he is, you can look him up at Keto Nutrition. Org for those of you right now in front of a computer. Welcome to the show, Dom. Thanks for having me. You, your resume and your list of accomplishments is almost so astounding. I feel like it has to be left for people to read versus me talk about the just numerous research scientist endeavors you have been involved in. And I know that you know you really are known in this world and people draw on you to talk about keto and nutrition in this fashion. Tell us though, let's go back to the beginning. How did you, in this field of scientific research, get interested in and start to dive into this niche arena? Yeah, uh, that's a a good question. An interesting one, uh, because I was really formally trained as a neuroscientist, like cellular neuroscience. And my the primary focus of my research was understanding uh, a type of seizure that's a limitation for Navy SEAL divers using closed circuit rebreathers. It's called oxygen toxicity seizures. So in the process of understanding uh, why we get these seizures and how the brain reacts to extreme environments, I started focusing on brain energy metabolism and was really focusing on drugs to prevent the seizures, but realized that there was uh, quite a lot of information, quite a lot of published literature supporting the ketogenic diet as an anti-seizure strategy for a wide variety of seizures independent of the etiology. So independent of of the type of seizure, the ketogenic diet worked for that. Interesting. I want to jump in because you just mentioned something that I know this is a bit of a tangent, but you just mentioned rebreathers, which enable a diver to be underwater. If people who are listening don't know, they are different than scuba, so they don't create the bubbles. They're silent and stealth, developed by the Navy in like the 40s. Amazing. Um, In fact, all of the underwater filmmakers for IMAX uh, series and things like that you see use um, Navy-issued government rebreathers. There's only a few left in the world. I think it's the Mark 15 or the Mark 14 or something like that. So you brought up something so random that I happen to know about. And what I'm wondering is, is are you talking about seizures that occurred because of that, because of being underwater, that like that it was that what was happening? And you were looking into why is it that these divers are having seizures in that scenario with the rebreather? Yeah. So uh, with special operations forces, they use a closed circuit rebreather. And in doing so, uh, the rebreathers are very small and compact and they're breathing in many cases, 100% oxygen. So, you know, we're breathing 20% oxygen under ambient conditions. That's the the level of oxygen in in the air. Uh, 100% oxygen is five times that. And if you go down to just 50 feet of seawater, your potential for having a seizure breathing 100% oxygen 
can is present within just 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. And that's not very deep and that's a very short amount of time. So, uh, you know, there's, there's many advantages to breathing, uh, these, you know, to using these closed circuit rebreathers and breathing hundred percent oxygen, you can avert the enemy because there's no bubbles. Uh, you avert decompression sickness, which is nitrogen getting nitrogen. So there's a lot of reasons, technical reasons why they are favorable. Uh, so they have many advantages and the disadvantages would be that oxygen's a stimulant to the brain and under hyperbaric pressure, the partial pressure of oxygen increases in the brain to the effect where it causes hyperexcitability and that hyperexcitability can result in metabolic dysregulation and a seizure. And, uh, and I got steered into the ketogenic diet as a countermeasure or a mitigation strategy to prevent these seizures from happening or to, to make it, uh, to increase the latency to, to these seizures. So that was really the focus. Can you explain in second grade terms? <laughs> no, no, but can you tell us then I'm interested in that action. So okay. I go keto as a diver. Uh-huh. What is it about going keto that helps my brain with that level of depth and what's happening through the closed circuit to ward off a seizure or prevent it from happening? Okay, great question. Uh, so you elevate ketone bodies in the blood, and that's uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. Both of them need to be elevated in the blood. They provide the brain an alternative energy substrate that not only energizes and preserves brain energy metabolism in the face of an oxidative, in the face of stress, right, being under high pressure oxygen, but the ketone bodies actually change the, I don't want to get too technical, but the neuropharmacology of the brain. So excitatory neurotransmitters that are, that cause your brain to freak out (laughs) are lower and more calming neurotransmitters like uh, GABA are elevated and they stabilize your brain. So it basically makes your brain more calm from a, a signaling perspective, from a neurotransmitter perspective, and it also provides the brain uh, a superior source of energy that helps it to stabilize overall sort of dynamics. You know, it prevents the brain from being dysregulated and going into a seizure. And the etiology, the, the 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 cause of these seizures are not like fully understood, but it is understood that if you give the brain a source of energy uh, that it can use well, and even under when it's in a stressful situation, it will function in that situation uh, that it would otherwise start to dysregulate. It would otherwise start to you know, uh, cause aberrant activity in, in the brain itself. Fascinating. Okay. So yeah, totally. This is fascinating. So I know we're getting, we're going to go get back to fat loss and keto at some point, everybody just, but, but on this is really (laughs) fascinating to me. So in that scenario, did you find, or were you able to conclude this, which is, so you know how I, I, I may be able to get into ketosis quickly, like anyone potentially can. But as we know, it can take maybe more time to really use that fuel efficiently, right? And so is this something where like the divers 
have to be keto for a certain period of time before this is valid? Can they get into keto quickly, be in there for just a few days, then go diving and have it have the same effects? Yeah. You know, that was a big question I had going into this. And I was of the opinion that divers would need to be on a ketogenic diet for a period of time for this to work. Uh, at the time, we're going back 10 years ago, uh, the program officer at the time did not like the idea of putting a Navy SEAL on a ketogenic diet. Like uh, the diets had kind of a bad rap. It was no one really had heard of the diet except for pediatric epilepsy. But I was still convinced it would work. And they basically came back and said, hey, well, come up with a ketogenic diet in a pill. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so I, I started, you know, I went to various institutions, including the NIH and, and uh, a number of, you know, uh, upper level institutions to, deter- to, to figure out how to do this. And the first ketone ester that we tried did not actually work. It elevated beta-hydroxybutyrate, but not acetoacetate, which is another uh, ketone body. And then upon further experimentation and research, we developed the ketone ester that elevates both uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. And when that was given as a single dose 30 minutes prior to diving uh, rats in an extreme environment, it caused remarkable neuroprotection. And I remember us standing around. I can't get the past the image, though, of yeah. like a scuba tank or like a rebreather uh, on a rat. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, we do have. I could send. You know, if you guys have show notes, I could send a, a link to the uh, the chamber that we use and and the camera of the rats inside and everything. Uh, but it's it's a dry chamber, but it simulates a dive to 132 feet of seawater, uh, which is five atmospheres of pure oxygen. And that will elevate your brain oxygen level from like two millimeters or 20 millimeters of mercury to like 2000 millimeters of mercury. And that basically causes hyperexcitability in the brain that causes a seizure. And acutely uh, inducing ketosis to the level of seven days of fasting you could do that in 30 minutes with a ketone ester. If you dive the animal, you know, after just 30 minutes, you had a 600% uh, protection or delay in that seizure from occurring. And that was above and beyond any anti-epilepsy drug that we had ever tried or anything that we had ever done. So it was kind of interesting that we're taking a natural metabolite that the body makes, sort of artificially elevating it, uh, in a way that produces this neuroprotection. And, you know, the first animal, I remember everybody standing around the chamber thinking we had never seen this before. And then every animal that we dove after, you know, had that level of neuroprotection or very close to it or more. Uh, so we published that, you know, years ago. And ever since then, we've been studying, you know, We've continued with the ketogenic diet. We still do that, but we also study various types of ketone supplementation and various applications for therapeutic ketosis is really what we do. So fascinating with the, the diving. Also, one last question on that. Was there a specific time frame of when it was like, oh, hour three underwater is when the seizures start to kick in? Was there you know, a, a, a thoroughfare there for that? Yeah. So we chose five atmospheres of oxygen, which is 132 feet of seawater, because you reliably get a seizure in humans and uh, in animals in about like four or five minutes. Right. So if you induce ketosis to to get your ketones up to five millimolar, uh, 
beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate combined, that would extend that from five minutes to over an hour. And so just to put it in perspective, if the animal was not in ketosis and you dobe them and maintain them in there for an hour, they would surely have, have died, you know, but when they do have a seizure, uh, for that period of time, and then you, you flush out the oxygen, uh, and decompress, they're totally fine, uh, after they have this seizure. So having a seizure underwater, uh, is fatal because you're having it underwater. But if they're in a, in a, a dry environment, th these types of seizures are reversible as soon as you decompress. So if a diver has a mask on and they have a seizure, uh, they could, and someone grabs them in time and pulls them up, they'll be okay. But if they have a regulator in their mouth and they spit out the regulator, then, then they're going to drown. So, uh, so these are kind of, but essentially we chose that because that level of oxygen, because in five minutes it reliably produces a seizure. So it gave us a good starting point and a baseline to figure out how can we extend our resilience against those seizures. And really that's what nutritional ketosis does. And I use that term sort of as a, a, an umbrella term. So therapeutic ketosis could mean fasting ketosis. It could mean uh, dietary ketosis with a diet or supplemental ketosis uh, with, with different forms of supplementation. What we know is that when you induce that level of ketosis, it makes you very resilient in that extreme environment. And now we're looking at other environments too, like uh, very like hyperbaric uh, pressures of like helium and nitrogen, and also hypobaric pressures. Like uh, to simulate, we can simulate the top of Mount Everest in our chamber. So we're doing uh, a variety of different extreme environments, and then assessing strategies to make us more resilient, not only increase safety, but increase performance in those environments. So like everybody's going to start to reach the peak of Mount Everest now. <laughs> just go keto and just go haul ass up that mofo. No, that's interesting too, because you're right, that now environment, you went deep to the sea, now you're up high, right? And that is altitude sickness along with everything else that happens, disorientation to the brain. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people die up there on the slopes. So that's really fascinating work. Now, moving into, and I kind of wanted to, you know, Again, you are, as everyone can tell, you're such a wealth of knowledge. And I know that, you know, really in our space, we do look to ketones and fat as being perhaps more of a superior or preferred fuel. And there's lots of areas that might suggest that. And so I want to go through a couple of areas, you know, maybe cancer, inflammation, you know, brain disorders. Um, but let's start with the concept in general. Um, and, and, and I know there were some studies done on the heart that show that perhaps it's a superior fuel there. Can we start there and, and, and I'll let you go where you need to for this. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, yeah, early work was done. W one of my mentors in this space, and, uh, I call him a mentor because he was really the first person that I stumbled upon that was working in this area. Uh, and his name is, uh, Dr. Richard Veach. And he's at the uh, National Institutes of Health, the NIH. And uh, yes, I interviewed him actually. Oh, you did? Yeah, he's yeah. he's a great guy. And uh, you know, he inspired me to kind of go in this direction. And I had, you know, I was calling him all the time, asking him questions. And uh, 
you know, and to determine what kind of, of ketogenic strategy would work in, in this scenario. And the early work that he did, and he's been around a while, he was a, a former student of Hans Krebs, the Krebs cycle. So uh, he was trained at Oxford and, and he's been, been around for quite a while. So I really took what he said as like the gospel, right? And it, and it really had a profound uh, influence on me because I was of the opinion that you had to be in a state of ketosis for a period of time to get the beneficial effects. Like your brain didn't readily use ketones, but would adapt to using ketones over time. And uh, he clarified to me that the brain already has the transporter to transport ketones, the, the monocarboxylic acid transporters. So all the transport mechanisms and all the, the, the enzymes and the metabolic machinery was already in the brain and already in the heart and, and many other tissues, but the brain and the heart are the two organs that really use ketones very efficiently because they have such a high metabolic demand. So they're very sensitive to energetic deficiency, I would say. So talking with him made me realize, wow, this is a potential strategy that you can acutely elevate ketones uh, right before going into a mission or right before diving. Uh, or going to altitude or whatever. And some of the work that he did on a working perfused heart preparation, it's kind of a, a gruesome preparation where you take the heart out of a, a living animal and you keep it pumping in artificial uh, fluid. And then you can monitor the hydraulic efficiency of the heart uh, by giving it different substrates. You can give it fatty acids or glucose and, and ketone bodies and insulin, and then you can play around with the ratios. What he discovered was that, in a nutshell, the hydraulic efficiency of the heart uh, was significantly greater, about 25% greater, when it was burning ketones relative to glucose. And the biochemistry, uh, you know, the, the work that he did. Uh, elegant biochemistry demonstrated that the delta G of ATP hydrolysis was was really higher when you're burning ketones for fuel relative to to burning glucose as an energy substrate. And, Can you yeah. dial that into <laughs> layman's terms? For me? Yeah, absolutely. So if you have a car, like my motorcycle only runs on high octane gas, right? So if I, and I did this one time by accident, I pulled in and filled up with uh, just regular gas and it was, it did not run right. It was uh, not completely burning the fuel. So I had a lot of dirty emissions coming out the exhaust. Uh, so I, I was thinking dirty might be the answer because my yeah. visual was thinking like, well, glucose is more of that dirtier, dirty, dirty, burning fuel. And exactly. I always think of like glucose and glycation. And I think, well, the heart doesn't like any of that business. But again, I am not coming from a scientific assessment here, you know, yeah. like you are, but is, is, yeah, yeah, it sounds like you're kind of going that direction. And that dirty, that exhaust coming out, that an analogy to that, or the analogous substance would be reactive oxygen species or free radicals, right? We've all heard of free radicals, you know, they're generated. So you generate more free radicals because the system is more inefficient when you're burning glucose. But if you now in my motorcycle, after I drain the tank and put in high octane gas, uh, the, it would burn that molecule much more efficiently. 
and I would get a much cleaner burning uh, exhaust coming out the back, very little carbon, you know, coming out the back, carbon residue. So the the body inside the cell, the exhaust, if you would, would be these reactive oxygen species. So you or free radicals. You produce much less free radicals uh, when you're burning ketones. And because the efficiency is higher, you're more you're making more ATP. And ATP is the energy currency, right, that our cells have. So essentially you're just deriving That's why it's more energy. Inflammatory as well. Like or anti-inflammatory as well. It is because reactive that's a good point. Reactive oxygen species, they not only damage cells, but they trigger uh, an inflammation reaction in the body. And if you produce this day in and day out, for example, if your glucose levels, your blood glucose is really high and you're type 2 diabetic, you are basically living in a state of chronic inflammation. And that has pretty severe consequences and will likely impact your longevity or you'll get early onset of age-related chronic diseases if you live in that state. So we want yes. to not live in that state. <laughs> yes, and I um, have mentioned it before, but for those who, of you who don't know, I had a 5.7 HbA1c at one point, was completely inflamed, had a couple of other markers as well, and it doesn't feel right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you notice the accelerated aging and sort of the falling apartness of oneself aside from other things I've experienced in life. Um, but that was certainly one of them. And so for the objection of, all right, Dom, but every single book, every single, we don't need to get into like how things got into textbooks because we all know that that, you know, some of this stuff's outdated. But, you know, Dom, every, everyone says that glucose is the fuel by which the body should be operating on. <laughs> yeah. And and, 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 and what's your short answer, if you can have one, to that? So, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think glucose is essential uh, for some aspects of normal biochemistry, uh, but, but the levels are <laughs> super physiological in most people, especially post, especially after you eat a meal. So the more you can transition your, your cellular metabolism to metabolize fatty acids and ketones relative to glucose, and we can train our metabolism to do that, we're going to have much less, our insulin levels are going to be lower, oxidative stress will be lower, uh, mitochondrial health will be better, uh, inflammation will go down, you know, uh, insulin sensitivity will go up, uh, and it'll be, our brains will, will like this. But you can't make glucose go down to zero because there's very powerful homeostatic mechanisms that actually regulate your blood glucose. But what you can do is lower glucose and prevent big spikes in glucose and insulin that typically come after eating a high-carbohydrate meal. And those spikes are attenuated, if not abolished, when you're eating uh, a low-carb ketogenic diet. So there's a lot of benefits uh, to that because it's those spikes in glucose and insulin that kick on pro-inflammatory pathways. Uh, once they Including reach a certain adrenals threshold, responding, yeah, right, exactly. negatively as well, yep. which is one of the things I, you know, mentioned with the 
Again, it's like a domino effect, of course. Um, but when the adrenals respond to, you know, it doesn't like those drops and those highs and those lows. It doesn't. And that's why that eat every two, three hours, keep insulin city, you know, make sure you're, you know, that, that old paradigm is just tapping into something we don't want to keep tapping into. So we don't have these fluctuations. I mean, yeah. Yep. What, um, you know, let's talk about cancer for a minute. I know keto for cancer is a huge thing. I've interviewed a couple of people who, were survivors and also uh, managed to mitigate some of the ill effects of chemo and side effects of what they were going through as they were healing through conventional and alternative methods. Um, and in their book, they talk about how there might be certain types of cancer, certain situations where keto might not be, you know, so it, this is not necessarily a blanket answer to all of that. What What's the most promising case for, you know, keto and cancer? I always looked at it like, well, when they try to find cancer in your body, they basically inject you with glucose. That says a lot. <laughs> but but other than that, I just understand it from a starving the cancer style kind of layman's standpoint. Um, what more can you add to that or help us get our head around keto and cancer? Yeah, that's we've we've written kind of extensively on this and we have uh, quite a few kind of publications on this. So we're most people who study cancer biology are very familiar with what's known as the hallmarks of cancer. So you don't, you have, cancer has to meet certain criteria <laughs> to be called a cancer. There are cells that proliferate in the body, uh, like stem cells, for example. They're very similar to cancer, but they don't form a tumor uh, under normal circumstances. So a cancer cell has sustained proliferation. Uh, it's almost like an immortalized cell, right? So it, it evades growth suppressors, right? So typically our skin, you know, has things that prevent us, the skin from, you know, growing three inches thick, right? So cancer cells don't have that. Uh, they have replicative immortality, so every time a cancer cell divides, it's like a fresh new cell again, and it divides again, and then it, it just starts dividing exponentially. Uh, there's The tumor has induced angiogenesis, which means as the tumor is growing, it's secreting things that increase the blood supply to the tumor. And we also have, uh, you know, as our cells age and become damaged, they, uh, they have signals that basically trigger for them to die. And cancer cells resist cell death, right? And I guess most importantly, most people... Cancer cells seem like a bunch of a-holes. <laughs> yeah. And I guess most importantly, though, is that the tumor, many people don't die of a tumor. They die of those cells basically getting into the blood supply and then metastasizing to other areas of the body. So what I just described there, the six things I just described are the hallmarks of cancer, right? So everybody, you know, when you're writing a review on cancer, you always start off, you know, the one hallmark of cancer is angiogenesis. And then, you know, the drug Avastin targets angiogenesis. But what's interesting about the ketogenic diet is that it targets the Warburg effect, which is the cancer using glucose as an energy source, which is a new hallmark of cancer. They finally just added it, even though Otto Warburg discovered it like 100 years ago. Uh, the ketogenic Meaning that's its food or like it loves to eat that. Exactly. Preferentially, there's rates of glucose consumption that are 100 to 200 times higher in cancer cells. 
So uh, the ketogenic diet really targets all the hallmarks of cancer. And there's uh, experimental evidence in cells, tissues, animal models, and humans to document this. And, uh, and it's all you know stuff that you can go on PubMed. And this is kind of what I give talks on. Uh, it doesn't do it in a powerful way like drugs do. But for example, it you know, decreases cellular proliferation. You know, you can imagine if you cut off the glucose supply, right, you're going to decrease cellular proliferation. By knocking down insulin and IGF-1, you are suppressing, uh, you're suppressing all the growth pathways associated with proliferation and then survival. Uh, the ketogenic diet enhances anti-cancer immunity. So it actually makes your immune system more vigilant to be able to detect and neutralize uh, cancers. Uh, and it really targets the new hallmark, well, they say new, the aberrant metabolism uh, and also inflammation. So they're the two sort of new hallmarks. Uh, it profoundly lowers inflammation uh, by decreasing glucose and insulin signaling. And it really targets what we call the Warburg effect, which is damaged uh, mitochondrial energy metabolism that typically associated with fat and ketone metabolism, and the, the cancer cells basically default to sugar metabolism or gl glycolysis. And, and because cancer cells rely so heavily on glycolysis, not all cancer cells, only the cancer cells that are most aggressive and dividing and proliferative will use glycolysis and sugar metabolism more. So they are the ones that show up more uh, on, a, on a PET scan, a glucose uh, PET scan. So those cancers will be selectively vulnerable to a ketogenic diet uh, intervention. And we use the ketogenic diet as part of a multi-modality kind of therapy. So we look at drugs, we look at hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, we look at you know different types of nutritional uh, therapies. But the ketogenic diet tends to impact many different metabolic pathways that are driving growth and proliferation. At the very least, it will slow uh, the majority of cancers uh, considerably if uh, it's done correctly. So they're doing it correctly. Obviously, you're talking about that's when a heavy level of involvement and engagement in ketone testing, et cetera, is really necessary. Yeah, it's not something you want to do, especially from the medical aspect, just like uh, using it for epilepsy, right? You want I direct people to the Charlie Foundation. Uh, Jim Abrams, his son Charlie, uh, was stricken with seizures and, and drugs didn't help him. So the ketogenic diet essentially cured his epilepsy. He was on it for a few years and got off of it and stayed seizure free. And it was a very inspiring story that motivated me. Uh, actually, the movie Meryl Streep starred in, uh, First Do No Harm, was about the ketogenic diet. And I watched that movie and that Really, and then I went to PubMed and and realized, wow, this is not like a fad diet. It's actually it's been around for a hundred years and was used for epilepsy, and was actually the standard of care, uh, and continues to be the standard of care for drug resistant epilepsy. Uh, 
And right. was, oh, we'd, we'd argue that it was around longer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Much, much longer. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, well, the diet is rather extreme. Like 90% fat was probably not, unless you're just eating bone marrow, I think, which is about 90% fat. Uh, so the diet had been, had a really good track record, like on paper. So I was, uh, I was really taken by the fact that it was grossly underutilized uh, for seizures. So, uh, you know, I was really inspired by the research. So I do, I actually think that the ketogenic diet may have more potential <laughs> for cancer than it does for epilepsy. It works remarkably well for epilepsy, but m my focus, we primarily study brain cancer in our lab and brain cancer is associated with seizures. So my first sort of uh, application of the ketogenic diet was uh, for preventing seizures in patients that had brain tumors. And the more I started learning about cancer metabolism and the Warburg effect, I started realizing that it may not only be able to manage the seizures, but it can also target uh, the growth and energy pathways of the actual tumor causing the seizures. So you're kind of hitting two birds with one stone by achieving what we call the metabolic zone. The metabolic zone is lowering blood glucose to a level uh, where the ketones are also elevated. <laughs> so for example, normal blood glucose is like five millimolar, you know, maybe a little, that's a little bit high, and ketones are essentially zero. But on a strict ketogenic diet, you could bring that glucose down to about 3.5 millimolar or three millimolar, and you can elevate ketones to three or 3.5 millimolar. And that would produce a glucose ketone index of one. And when you elevate ketone bodies to the level of glucose in the blood, that produces a profound uh, metabolic stress to cancer, you know, because insulin will also be very low. And simply producing that state may be enough to stop the growth and proliferation of cancer, but it definitely makes the cancer more vulnerable to other modalities that you implement. And that could be chemo and radiation, but we really focus on uh, cancer-specific metabolic drugs, things like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which stresses cancer. If you hyperoxygenate uh, cancer while you produce that metabolic state, the cancer cells overproduce oxygen-free radicals, and you can kind of kill them from the inside out. Um, and we also use various drugs that block glucose metabolism while we'll, why we're si simultaneously producing that state. So, you know, there are people out there, unfortunately, promoting uh, a diet a diet that can cure or beat cancer, and that's unfortunate because. I don't know of any diet that can that can cure cancer. I know, you know, the ketogenic diet and things like calorie restriction and maybe fasting can slow cancer growth uh, and should be the foundation, really, I think, of any cancer therapy, but it needs to be done in combination with other forms of therapy uh, to eradicate cancer. And we're really focused not only on, you know, implementing the ketogenic diet to get that glucose ketone index to, to one, but also uh, we're working with a toolbox of drugs and other relatively non-toxic approaches to synergize with the diet therapy. So fascinating. So much incredible advan advancements have been made in our lifetime. 
And to think that some of them are just getting kind of back to basics with uh, an old school diet, shall I say. Um, Let's talk about type 2 diabetes for a second. So I wonder, you know, and again, because coming from someone who, like me, who's going to be speaking about it in ways that might be easier to understand, it it may not carry weight because I'm not a researcher like you. Um, But, you know, one of these things we talk about with type 2 diabetes, because people who have gotten onto insulin and gone that route, there are people who are shooting insulin and then they're using that as just like the mitigator for the glucose that they intake. They are still on that train. And my point is always, you're not getting away with it, right? Um, And that's one of the reasons too, to get off a carbohydrate dependent diet, because you may look slim and trim, but in the background, the tapping of the pancreas, the releasing of the insulin, the having to, or, you know, and the glucose having to burn it and being on that hamster wheel, you're not getting away with it because the tapping of the, of the pancreas like that in and of itself and releasing that, I guess it goes back to the whole, right? Like aren't some of the longest living species, the ones that emit the least amount of insulin, even though of course insulin is very important. So can you touch on this? I know you know what I'm talking about, but can you kind of elaborate there and maybe shed some light here? No, that that was well put. Yeah, I think uh, type 2 diabetes is really insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, and really by definition, carbohydrate intolerance. You know, I would I would definitely, I don't think anyone could really argue that type 2 diabetes is not carb intolerance, <laughs> you know, right. and that's uh, sort of by definition is that you have a high level of baseline glucose, and and probably most importantly is that the elevation of glucose in response to a, a glucose-containing meal uh, is is elevated, and that postprandial response uh, in glucose and insulin can do a lot of damage. So I, I think we really need to treat. Uh, a dietary disease with diet and not drugs. You know, uh, I think a, a, this dietary disease will be most responsive uh, to a dietary intervention, which is simply lowering the carbohydrates. It does not have to be a ketogenic diet, but instead of you know 300 grams of carbs a day or whatever the American Dietetic Association is uh, recommending. Uh, to basically dial down the level of carbohydrates and the type of carbohydrates and monitor your glucose levels until you reach uh, a healthy glucose state. I mean, it could be, it's literally that simple. And I think uh, generally speaking, you want to keep protein moderate uh, and and replace the the carbohydrates with uh, healthy forms of fat. And, And you also, of course, you know, lowering total Calorie intake could be very helpful, especially in the beginning, but as you train your body to burn fat and if you go ketogenic ketones uh, in place of glucose, then uh, with that transition, you'll start to see better numbers in your insulin level, in your baseline glucose level, and also your, uh, the glucose response to meals will be significantly attenuated uh, when you're eating less carbohydrates. And that's really the important point. There's less variation in your glucose fluctuation throughout the day. When we look at keto or even transitioning from being you know, a heavy sugar burner to just a standard paleo primal ancestral low carb paradigm, which is so helpful and wonderful in and of itself. But when we look at that, you know, 
we have to keep paring down. It can take some time. And I know you've had a couple conversations with Mark Sisson, um, you know, in the keto reset diet, which is, you know, if anyone wants to really do this the right way, that's a good way to go because he sort of is like bringing you through the whole, Hey, take some time to kind of switch over to this predominant fuel source. And while there might be reasons and medical reasons why people need to jump there right away, you know, that's why the keto reset kind of takes you through like, all right, let's do this 21 days or a month, do a little bit test. Are you, have you even earned the right yet to kind of go further, you know, uh, because it is a different, it really is a different state and sometimes can be a little bit mm, awkward or uncomfortable for people if they just jump into it and don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I know I've heard you talk about it before where you're like, you know, you think it, it sometimes can take even longer to really get into this. And so to give it even more time when someone's going to try to go down this road and, and get into keto and see how that works for them, you were saying, you know, hey, a couple of months and then things still even change over time. And I've noticed that with just paleo primal. Uh, yeah. Forget keto for a second, just going low carb and changing that paradigm. Things changed right away, then they changed even more than they kept, right? So can you talk about how your impression of keto is that way? Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, I just got out of a, a public radio, uh, kind of an NPR kind of interview where I brought that up that once you go on a ketogenic diet, you have to give your body some time to adapt. And it was kind of caught them off guard. And I was like, oh, they didn't know about that. And they thought it was like, well, does it take a whole week? And I was like, well, at the very least, I was a very fast adapter, uh, I think initially, because I didn't get the keto flu. So in two or three weeks, I felt okay. But I didn't really feel myself until probably two or three months into it, you know, in the gym, I felt as far as performance and things like that, where my metabolism, uh, metabolic machinery, if you will, kind of switched over and was effectively utilizing uh, burning energy uh, or burning fats and ketones in the background of low glucose. You know, uh, my body was kind of stressed when I was trying to do that initially because I think it was searching for glucose. But I think of it as like a factory, you know. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this before, kind of using the analogy, is that if you have a factory that's building ships, right, and then you switch that factory over to building airplanes, or it's going to take some time to do that. You know, if you're burning, if you're the, the machinery in that factory really needs to be replaced to be efficient to, to switch from building ships to building planes. And the, the same thing kind of happens in our bodies that our, our mitochondria are under more stress to make more energy because glucose uh, metabolism or glycolysis occurs outside of the mitochondria. So we're actually forcing the powerhouse of the cell, the mitochondria, we're actually forcing them to make more energy. So our bodies make more mitochondria, that's called mitochondrial biogenesis, and we need to upregulate the all the enzymes, the fat oxidation enzymes, the ketolytic enzymes, and the transport mechanisms to effectively uh, be able to transport, utilize, and burn these ketones for energy. And that does, that definitely does not occur overnight, uh, or even like in a week or two, it really occurs over the course of, of many weeks. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. I think we can agree upon that. And I think the more you do it, uh, the more benefits you derive from it. Once you have, uh, eased into and become keto adapted, 
Uh, and a good example of this, kind of a barometer of this, would be fasting, right? When I, if I tried to fast on a very high carbohydrate diet, which I was on maybe 10, 15 years ago, that would have been hard. But now, once my body is, you know, adapted to burning fat. I can basically feed off myself <laughs> during the morning hours or during the day and feed off my fat stores and I have better access like, to that I like fat. that. So efficient. It's so efficient. Yeah. You just, you're your own kitchen. It's amazing. Yeah. Yep. So that's, you know, that becomes very difficult if your body is, and your brain really, because that's, that's the energy sensing system is adapted to using glucose. So there's a bit of glucose withdrawal that you go to, uh, go through and, Elevating your blood ketone levels really is a strategy to prevent resilience against that glucose withdrawal. So that's why if your ketones are elevated, you're relatively asymptomatic against uh, hypoglycemia, right? And hypoglycemia, when your blood glucose goes low, you're going to be reaching, you're going to the fridge, you're going for that candy bar, you're going for a sugary drink. And if your ketones are elevated and your glucose goes low, you're kind of not even feeling it. I mean, once your body is adapted, you're you're not feeling it as much for sure. Absolutely. And I guess as we sort of finish up here in the next 10 minutes or so, I, I bet everyone listening, including myself, is like, all right, I want to know what this guy does, what he takes, what supplements, what does he eat? <laughs> you're like the ultimate researcher. Um, so I, I won't put you on the spot for your everything that you do, but... Tell us, um, what is what do your days look like? Are you almost always at a certain carb level or below, or are you up and down? Do you have a heavy carb day every now and then, or based on what you know, you're like, I'm not even going there for a day. Like, what does your personal life look like with keto? Yeah, it, it does vary from day to day. Uh, the last couple of days, I did not eat breakfast, but I would say about maybe a third of the time to sometimes a half of the time, if I'm trying to gain a little bit of weight, I'll include a small breakfast, like a ketogenic breakfast, uh, usually eggs, steak, fish, maybe whatever's left over from last night. Uh, today was a little weird just cause today was first day back at the university. And, uh, my first meal was like, uh, wild planet tuna fish. So I've been eating their sardines, but this time I'm, try I'm trying their tuna fish. And I added some coconut oil and MCT to that. Uh, and actually I had a primal kitchen, one of the bars, the, uh, I think it was like coconut lime bar. bar. It was like coconut oh, lime. Yeah. yeah. So, so I had one of those and, uh, and that was my first meal, maybe around one o'clock, uh, and uh, I did an interview with public radio and came back and I checked my ketones and they were elevated. So, uh, you know, I was kind of firmly in ketosis. But yesterday was a weekend and my first meal was a butcher box steak on top of uh, uh, a bed of lettuce. And actually I used some of the Primal Kitchen's uh, – uh, there's new steak sauce, which I, I put on top of that. And that was fantastic. That was my first meal of the day. So it really varies every day, but generally speaking, I keep my protein pretty moderate, uh, usually about 1.5, 1 to 1.5 grams per kilogram on some, some days, if a day, if I'm training or doing physical activity, can we translate that into math we can do yeah, for our own bodies? A uh, hundred to 200 grams uh, per day would be the high end if I'm active. I mean, years ago I used to eat like 400 grams of protein and that was completely unnecessary. But nowadays, like a high protein day would be like 200 grams of protein and a lower protein day would be like a hundred grams of protein. I'm, I'm, uh, a hundred kilograms. So like one gram 
per kilogram. So uh, I'm about 220. So that's uh, the level that I that I kind of maintain. The lowest I'll go is about 100 grams. And then my carbohydrates vary. Uh, the main source of carbohydrates are salads, uh, you know, Brussels sprouts, asparagus, a lot of broccoli, uh, cauliflower, mashed potatoes. Um, and I do every day I have dark chocolate and blueberries and usually, uh, the carbohydrates that are in, uh, the primal bars that I'm eating. And I usually carry that with me throughout the day and that'll kind of be like my first meal. I'll have, um, you know, and I travel a lot too. So I tend to bring more portable nutrition when I'm traveling. And that could be like canned fish, uh, or the bars or, or whatever. But, but typically, you know, about 3000 calories a day, you know, a hundred to 200 grams of protein a day. And sometimes my fat is in excess of 300, 250 to 300 uh, grams a day of fat. I know that sounds really high. Uh, but on days that I'm active, but you, you're 220 pounds, right? Yeah, yeah. and So you're like a larger person anyway. I mean, that would be crazy for someone like me who's 5'2", but... <laughs> yeah, and that, I mean, I did that over the last couple of weeks just because I was, we were walking, you know, uh, we we're out hiking a lot and I have a farm. So I'm actually, on some days, you know, I'll spend, you know, eight to 10 hours cutting logs and carrying things on the farm and, and you know, I'll, I'll just sort of dump a lot of calories in. But if I'm at my desk all day uh, or just at the university, sometimes it'll be as little as like 2,000 calories, not even a day. So I do vary it. And I, right. It's mitigating based on, you know, activity levels. And that's when you have to sort of exactly. get to the point where you can be intuitive about it. And you, this is, you know, what we talk about a lot on the podcast and not getting too strict and crazy with macros per day. Yeah. Because I like you, you know, we live in the mountains. I might go on a two hour hike. Well, that might be a different day then than just sitting around and having done nothing with maybe no exercise, which is rare. But if it happens, I might, I would, you know, it, it factors in for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. You got to be mindful about what you're eating. And then, and titrate your calories. I don't really eat more or less of different foods. I just eat more of the same foods, kind of. Like my grocery list is not that long. It's not very super diverse. Uh, but uh, I just eat more of the same foods. But it involves bacon, I'm assuming. <laughs> it does, yeah. It's <laughs> bacon, actually. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I pretty much stick low carb. I wouldn't say I'm ketogenic all the time. And sometimes I eat protein. That definitely kicks me out. But I also supplement with things like MCTs and probably take about one dose of a ketone supplement per day. And there's a variety of ones on the market. And uh, the ones that we have that we support and that we've actually tested in the lab are on the ketonutrition.org website. And so they're, they're the kind of ones that, it, that I stick to just based upon you know, the research we've done in the lab. And, uh, but I think of them as like a supplement. Why are you doing exogenous ketone supplements? For what purpose are you doing it? Personal experimentation, a specific uh, goal? Yeah, well, we know ketones are, like I talked about, they are alternative energy substrates for the brain, right? So they're also a form of calories. So they are like the fourth macronutrient. So you have carbs, proteins, and fats. So ketones are really, they contain calories. So it's almost like a, a, a new form of energy. Uh, and it's fairly bioidentical. The ones that we're you know, developing and using now are bioidentical to what's in the body. So you can consume it. It has absolutely no effect on elevating glucose. It actually tends to lower your blood glucose, which is kind of an, an interesting thing that we're studying. And we'll, we'll publish that pretty soon. 
uh, and it gives your body energy at the same time. But it also has epigenetic effects, which means that it activates various gene pathways uh, that could be neuroprotective, uh, definitely anti-inflammatory. We know that beta-hydroxybutyrate inhibits an inflammasome that's associated with chronic inflammation, that's associated with autoimmune diseases, and that's the NLRP3 inflammasome. That's a big part of what we're doing right now is looking at the signaling effects of ketones. So by consuming it and elevating it in the blood to low to moderate levels, we can get many benefits, you know, that we've already observed in the lab and, uh, you know, and I just feel good like when I take it, but you have to, is that an empty stomach situation or how do you actually take it? And is it a time of day thing for you? Like where in your life do you drink some, um, you know, exogenous ketones? Yeah. I'll usually, a lot of times I'll make it my, sometimes I make it my first meal of the day. So if I'm intermittent fasting, uh, it sort of prolongs and extends that fast. So I'm still getting benefits. Uh, the, you know, insulin is suppressed, glucose is low and ketones are high, you know, following consumption of this. And, uh, and I feel sort of charged, but there are ketone salts on the market. If you consume a ketone salt, your ketone levels spike up real fast. And then, uh, then it comes back to zero real quick, right? You have to deliver it with a ketogenic fat like MCTs. Uh, so if, if you combine a ketone salt with medium chain triglycerides, you're stimulating your own ketone production at the same time. So MCTs are metabolized in the liver to ketones, and it also slows the absorption of the ketone salts. So they're better tolerated and also prolongs the elevation of ketones in the blood, uh, over time. So I take a small amount of a ketone salt with an MCT-based powder and sometimes collagen uh, together with that. And that'll be like my first meal. And I'll still feel like I'm sort of have that energy and clarity of the fasted state. And and, and oftentimes that, that may be my first kind of meal of the day. But We've done so much research on ketones, we kind of have a little bit of insight into, you know, the therapeutic effects, the neuroprotective effects, and, you know, the metabolic, the positive metabolic. But you could easily do it with diet. Well, not easily. I would say the ketones, <laughs> if, you, if you follow a diet that kicks you out of ketosis and is not a strict diet, you might be able to supplement ketones or just medium-chain triglycerides and get many of the benefits of keeping those ketone bodies elevated in the blood. And now we're realizing that there are true benefits to doing that. Do you have a favorite MCT oil or supplements and products that are on your shelf that you're always sipping on? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I use a variety of products uh, on the shelf. Uh, I have to look around. Will to any see. MCT so, oil do for people or something that you should, you want to tell us to look out for or, you know what I mean? Or is there anything around that? Yeah, I, I do. I have them listed on ketonutrition.org. Okay, great. Well, but s- some of the ones that I, I would use and that actually we published on are, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the brand names. Perillo Nutrition makes Captree, uh, and that's caprylic triglyceride. That's the C8. Uh, even the generic brands like Now Nutrition, you know, we've used that and gotten good results in the lab with elevating ketones on that. Uh, Metagenics has a MCT oil that's more of a clinical oil. I think that's available maybe online. You can get that. But generally speaking, you know, most of the MCT oils are all kind of using the same uh, 
source, I believe, or, or similar sources. So many of the ones on the market do work. Where you will find a lot of variability is the ketone salts that are on the market. And their formulations are quite different. And the raw ingredients that many of the companies are using are quite different. So you really have to be careful when you navigate that. Um, so we're pretty careful in what we test in the lab and want to have third-party testing and whatnot when we, when we do that. Excellent. And also, too, everybody can go to ketonutrition.org. And I was talking with Dom earlier, and he mentioned that, you know, a lot of the studies or anything he might have mentioned or things you're curious about, you can dive deeper into and can actually really access the PubMed articles and uh, research papers, et cetera, for, for a lot of topics that have been mentioned. So go to ketonutrition.org. We will also put uh, all of the links to connect with you on social media and elsewhere. And I want to mention that uh, Dom is speaking at the Metabolic Health Summit in Long Beach at the very uh, end of January, beginning of February. You can go to metabolichealthsummit.com and to get tickets to that. And so you can see him speak there. What I'd love you to leave our audience with why everybody should look down the path of the future of trying this, of going this direction. Yeah, well, I, I don't really pitch it as something everybody should try, but I do uh, I, I do kind of pitch it as a very effective tool in your toolbox of dietary strategies. And I view diet, I think like the original Greek like term for diet was lifestyle, right? So I approach low carb ketogenic eating as a lifestyle. And I will say, you know, without hesitation that it has changed my life. I got, I'm not sure if I could achieve what I did in academia, like getting tenure at the university and publishing all this stuff and having the energy to do that, uh, was much easier living this lifestyle, you know, essentially the, the primal lifestyle where you're fat adapted and keto adapted. It m makes you much more resilient to where I don't get hungry. I have more energy. I don't have to stop and, and prepare food, eat food and clean up. Like, and that saves a ton of time and I just get a lot more done. I feel better. My, all my blood work is the best it's ever been. I mean, compared to, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it's, it's even much better now in my mid forties. So, uh, so I would say, you know, that has been my experience and I don't, I don't want to say it'll be the experience for everybody, but I think if they're interested in trying this to do as much research as possible and to get, I mean, one of the books I, I highly recommend is Keto Reset and it's, uh, you know, I just recommended it on public radio is like one of the go-to books that really helps educate you. I mean, the, the recipes in there and everything kind of coaches you uh, in on how to do this. And I think it's very important for people to educate themselves because the more you learn about it and all the potential benefits of this lifestyle, the more engaged uh, you are in it and the more empowering it is to try this. And you get more excited to try it if you know all the, uh, the best way to do it and all the health benefits from it. Thank you so much for joining us. And everyone, again, ketonutrition.org. Really appreciate your time and your knowledge and all of the work that you're doing in this area because it's just, it's helping millions of people. And, you know, how many more millions in the future, we don't know. So thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
Hey, everyone, to all of our Whole30 friends out there, visit primalkitchen.com forward slash Whole30 for a special gift with purchase on our latest and greatest Whole30 approved items. Remember, sauces, dressings, toppings, that makes healthy eating exciting. We have a whole collection of Whole30 items that are super delicious, making an elimination diet like Whole30 easy and flavorful. So this is exclusive to special Whole30 friends. Don't miss out on a chance to collect on this awesome Whole30 deal.